every chapel has a different sound system. And one you turn on, the other you turn off. So I always do it backwards. So I prefer the expert do it. Greetings. I heard someone say to their wife earlier today they love them. And um, <clears throat> someone sent me a fax recently. And uh, it said that this uh, man and his wife had been married 50 or 60 years. And uh, the couple that came over was about their same age. They'd been friends for years. And they noticed that the husband was referring to his wife with all kinds of little terms of endearment. Sweetheart, sugar plum, teddy bear, and lovey, and all these words that most of us husbands wouldn't use if they paid us. Uh, But when the ladies got up and went to the kitchen to serve the food... The visiting man leaned over to the elder gentleman that was celebrating his anniversary, and he said, he says, it's really, really nice to see love is still alive in your marriage. And the elder gentleman looked at the floor for a moment. Well, actually, ten years ago, I forgot her name. (laughs) (laughs) So those of you that uh, if you forget your wife's name, think of some good words to say. Maybe that will be better. I just had to get out of my system. Now let's turn to Second Chronicles chapter 12. Second Chronicles chapter 12. And we want to read verses 2 through 12. And uh, I, I have asked uh, one or two of you to listen carefully to what I'm going to say because this is one of those unique kind of sermons that you've never heard before and probably will hope you'll never hear again. If it ministers to you, now this is asking a question. It's not that my ego needs it. I just like to see if it's a technique that blesses the hearts of the listeners. So after the service, I'd like you to decide if I should occasionally preach like this again or throw it away and maybe never preach again. I'm not sure. So let's go along together, and you're going to see what I have to say and and what I mean when we go along. Second Chronicles chapter 2 down to verse 12 says, And it came to pass that in the fifth year of King Rehoboam, Shishak, king of Egypt, came upon Jerusalem because they had transgressed against the Lord. When 1200, with 1,200 chariots, threescore thousand horsemen, and the people were without number who came with him out of Egypt, and Lubim, and the Shukim, and the Ethiopians, And he took the fortified cities which pertained to Judah and came to Jerusalem. Then came Shimeiah, the prophet, to Rehoboam, to the prince of Judah, to the princes of Judah, who were gathered together at Jerusalem, because Shishak had said unto them, Thus saith the Lord, Ye have forsaken me, and therefore have I also left you in the hands of Shishak. Whereupon the princes of Israel and the kings humbled themselves, and they said, The Lord is righteous. And when the Lord saw that they humbled themselves, the word of the Lord came to Shimei, saying, They have humbled themselves. Therefore I will not destroy them, but I will grant them some deliverance. And my wrath shall not be poured out upon Jerusalem by the hand of Shishak. Nevertheless, they shall be his servants." That they may know, now let verse 8 stick in your heart, that they may know my service and the service of the kingdom of the countries. Now, there's a different translation on this that I'm going to share with you in a few minutes. So Shishak, king of Egypt, came up against Jerusalem and took away the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king's house, and he took all. 
he carried away also the shields of gold which Solomon had made, instead of which King Rehoboam and made shields of bronze and committed them to the hands of the captains of the guard who kept the entrance of the king's house. And when the king entered into the house of the Lord, the guard came and fetched them and brought them again to the guard chamber. And when he humbled himself, the wrath of the Lord was turned from him, and he would not destroy him altogether. And also in Judah, things went well. Now, for those of you that study for preaching and study for lessons, this is an excellent portion of Scripture on revival. Uh, But this is not what I'm going to speak on this morning, even though I hope we'll all be revived as we go along. Let's pause a moment and ask the Lord to bless our time together. Father, we thank you again for your love to us, and we pray today that uh, the Word of God and the Spirit of God will speak to our hearts, and that whatever lesson each of us needs the most, we pray that you will meet that need, even though it may differ in each heart here. Bless your Word to our hearts, we pray, and we thank you in advance for what we expect to hear. In our Savior's name we pray. Amen. We can't give you a whole lot of details because time doesn't allow it, but after King Solomon built the temple, this is where we are here in Second Chronicles, and dedicated it, he and all of Israel enjoyed God's blessings for, for a long time. Now remember, I want to point out that Solomon was declared by God to be the wisest man on earth at the time. God gave him super-duper wisdom because he did not ask for wealth or popularity or pride or power. He said, I want to do your will. Give me wisdom to serve you correctly. And God says, now I'm going to honor you and I'm going to give you wisdom to serve me correctly. And along the side, by the way, I think I'll pour in a, a few million dollars for you. And he made him exceedingly wealthy, the wealthiest man around. And all the other things that man could work for, and sometimes we dedicate our lives to without the Lord, God put those also on Solomon. So he had it all. But if you read the text a little further, you'll find that dear old Solomon, and it's a great encouragement to me, because I've never never, never desired or ever said I'd want to be the wisest man on earth, even though I keep telling my wife that, she still doesn't believe it. But Solomon made a big mistake. He had a strong mind, but he had a weak heart, weak emotions. And in the latter years of the smartest man on earth, and this is an encouragement to us, I hope, and not that he did wrong, but that the the, the top of the people, the top of the crowd, still do wrong. He allowed and married foreign women. Now, in most Bibles, in the King James Bible, it says strange women. Well, most of us men, we know that all women are strange. So I guess the the translators said it foreign, and that's really what it should be a little bit, a little bit more clear. But he allowed foreign women to turn his heart. And saints, this ought to be a tremendous lesson to each of us here, from the true God of heaven to false gods. A man as smart as he was. God told King Solomon before he died that for the most part his kingdom will after his death be taken away because of that. None of us realize, and being in the Lord's work and doing the type of work I do, meeting with people, I have, this comes to me every month, at least once a month with whoever I'm working with privately, 
when a man is unfaithful to his wife or a wife is unfaithful to her husband, more damage is done that can ever be corrected. It can be forgiven, but it can't be corrected. I probably have asked this question to at least a hundred divorcees. Are you fully recovered from the loss of this marriage? And every one of them say, no, you never fully recover. You walk with a limp the rest of your life, even though you marry someone else. Second time or third time or whatever. We don't know the damage of sin and disobedience to God until we do it. And even when we do it and even are repent and are forgiven by God, the damage goes on throughout life forever. Well, Solomon did that. And in time, Solomon died. And Rehoboam, his son, was left to be the next king over Israel. Now, because Solomon had gotten away from the Lord and followed strange or foreign women, his son watched him in the last years of his life. So when he inherited the throne... He tried to manage Israel like Solomon did. Solomon had lost his insight. By the way, that's what sin does. You lose your ability to appraise things correctly. Most of us know what went on in our last president's life. And if you'll stop and think a little bit, when that, during that period of time in which he was following the wrong people, he made some decisions that we are still suffering from today because he didn't analyze the problem correctly. He couldn't. His mind was distorted. And we're that way. When we're out of fellowship with God, we don't have the ability and the peace of mind and peace of soul to see properly. And then we make a, an incorrect decision because we see an incorrect problem. We can't overemphasize the importance of following God with all your heart like Solomon did. But don't let sin in any form lead you aside, lead you astray, because it distorts your thinking. And the rest of your life suffers from that. Well, Solomon did try to control the people of Israel by being harsh. Being harsh. He was strict. He didn't recognize them. He didn't follow them. He didn't help them. And so when Rehoboam came along... Uh, he dealt harshly with the Israelites, and he followed suit. And the people suffered. In fact, the, all of Israel suffered because of this. He went like father, like son. And finally, ten of the twelve tribes of Israel, with a young man who had promising leadership ability, but not necessarily chosen of God, uh, they, they selected Jeroboam as their leader, and they rebelled against King Rehoboam. Now, remember, Rehoboam, R, is the son of Solomon. Jeroboam was a young upstart, but had good promise. And so the people were suffering so much that they, they in a sense, they loved Rehoboam, but they couldn't take any more of this pressure, David's kingdom and so on. And so... They are most often as identified as the northern kingdom, by the way. If you, I always got this mixed up in school. I couldn't remember Jeroboam and Rehoboam and which one was which. Uh, but the R comes before the J, so just remember that. That's Solomon's son. And he called Israel because they, they, they forsook the, the uh, Rehoboam, and they became known in the Scriptures as the northern kingdom, north of Jerusalem, that is. Well, the southern kingdom had... Two 
two tribes, uh, Judah and Benjamin. They remained loyal to the son of Solomon, Rehoboam, and uh, followed him. Now listen to what happened. As time went on, King Rehoboam followed his father's suit. He fell into sin. Again, like father, like son. Fathers, every father here, you ought to be exceedingly careful how you live your life before your children. If they're no more than a year old, because what you see, what they see you do, they're going to do. It's going to come out. I'm not going to give you a lot of illustrations because the clock won't let me, but let me say it touches every area of your life. As time went on, King Rehoboam and his followers fell into sin, and God began to judge them through the man that we read about, Shishak, the king of Egypt. However, when the pressure increased real bad, and sometimes God has to turn up the heat in our lives before we'll repent, Rehoboam and his people repented. And so things went better with them for a while and for all of Israel. Now, this brings us to the starting text that I read to you. Keep your Bible open there to Second Chronicles chapter 12. And before going any further, let me share with you a, a little rule that I practice when I read God's Word. And I think everyone should do it, and maybe you do it accidentally whether you know it or not. I like to ask three questions when I'm reading the Word of God. First of all, what does the text say? Secondly, what does the text mean? How many of us are married to someone that can never seem to say what they mean? Phraseology just doesn't come out right. Now, sometimes our dear wives, they might want us to do something, but they want us to be so much in love with them that we read their minds and do it in advance. Does any husband here know what I'm talking about besides myself? Well, we just can't do that. The day later, Jeannie says, Honey, don't you remember you promised you was going to do so-and-so? What did I promise, sweetie pie? <laughs> sweetie pie, sugar plum. What did I promise? Well, you know, the other day we talked about so Well, what has that got to do with this? Well, you, this is connected to this, and this is connected to this, and this equals that. Honey bunch, I didn't catch it. I didn't. And most of us husbands are that way. And we're, we run around guilty all the time. Women's faults are many. Men have but two. Everything they say and everything they do, you know. <laughs> Well, let's get back to the text. Ask the question, what does the text say? Secondly, what does it mean? And sometimes it's easier to figure out what the Word of God says than our wives. But thirdly, and this is the most important, when you read the Bible, ask yourself this question, what does the text mean to me? To me, right now, to me, today, right this hour. Because I believe, as someone prayed earlier, God can meet your need through the Word of God regardless of what portion of Scripture you're reading because the Spirit of God can make raise up out of the text that which you need right now if you're sincere and you're seeking God's will. So I like to say, Lord, you know, I don't know what I need right now. We don't know our own needs. The Bible says that. But God does. And when we read the Word of God with the right attitude and submissive to control of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God can make the text freeze up. And you see it. Well, with this in mind, let me say that recently, and this, wasn't, this is another one of those sermons that you're going to get that was never intended to be a sermon, but it blessed me so much, I hope a little spark can fly over uh, on, onto you. I was reading in a, 
the New Living Translation. Now, I'm, I'm not necessarily following everything that says, but it's good to have a... I like to read every translation all the way through from Genesis to Revelation every, every time one comes out. But I, I keep my good old Schofield Bible right there. And uh, when I had a problem with the newer translation, I go back and see what God has to say in the Schofield Bible. After all, if it was good enough for the Apostle Paul, it was good enough for me, you know. The Schofield Bible, that is. That's supposed to be a joke. You're supposed to laugh. One, two, three, laugh. Good. All right. Well, I was reading along there in Second Chronicles. I started in chapter 11 and verse 1, and I really didn't get anything that impressed me so much until I got to chapter 12 in verse 8 in this New Living Translation. Is there anyone here that has a New Living Translation from which you're reading right now? All right. Well, we have one spiritual brother in the group. I was reading along, and when I got to verse 8, I was impressed by the, by the words, the much better, those two words, much better life that is enjoyed by those who serve God. Now, you don't see it quite like that in the King James Version. But God was speaking, and He says, those that serve me will enjoy a much better life. Well, now... <clears throat> I always like things better. My, my tolerance for suffering is very, very small. I like the good life. Not necessarily the rich life or the better life, but just the good life. Relaxed living. Blue skies, green grass, calm seas, full stomach. Buddy, my dog, next to my side. You know, My wife's sitting on my lap, but I won't talk about that. We like the good life. And God says there is a way that you can enjoy the much better life. Well, I said to myself, this is, this is what I like to know. I, you know, if I, if I don't have it already, I, I want all of it I can, I can have. By the way, it doesn't rule out success in earthly endeavors, but it does teach that the will of God should be over our earthly endeavors. Most of us have had a time in our lives. When I was in the business world, I was... I was in a business that required total dedication, total commitment, if you're going to win. I won, but it took total commitment. At the same time, I almost lost the knowledge, or my children often lost the knowledge of who the dad was. I was gone from home working for the company so many, so many days that uh, Dan went across the street when he was just a, less than a year old, and, and the neighbor said, who's the man in your house? He really says his name's Dad, but I don't know who he is. I hope it was me, you know. And the next week when I found out about that, I resigned my job. I didn't leave the company, but I asked to be demoted to regional manager so I wouldn't have to travel the country so much. I could be at home every night with my family. Sometimes the business and the success of the world can be the most damning thing that ever happened to some of us. Well, God sometimes, however, when we put Him on the throne of our hearts and claim His Lordship, then gives us these other blessings just like he did Solomon. Let's not make the mistake of putting worldly success in front of serving God. How many Christians, for instance, let me just ask you this question. How many of us know someone? No, it's not us, especially anyone at San Ramon Valley Bible Church. It's not us. But how many of us know someone who, in their service, in their service for God, assigned it a priority lower than their other endeavors. Oh, today's Saturday. I've got to work on my car. Well, okay. 
didn't finish it on Saturday, so I got to do it Sunday morning, not Sunday afternoon. You could do it Sunday afternoon, but I got to do it Sunday morning to make sure I can get to work tomorrow. Well, that sounds legitimate and sounds reasonable, but you're cutting God out of the picture. God has a priority, but He's not top priority. We're talking about giving God top priority. Whatever God requires of us, do it without question. And everything else will fall in place. When one is brought inside the intimate circles of the lives of people, many who are really way up the social ladder, successful in the world, rich, healthy, famous, glory, all of that, when Christ is not where He should be, He finds out that the much better life isn't there. It eludes them altogether. Now, I can say that because I've been in these homes, a lot of these homes. I've had the privilege of being invited by people that you would not believe who have flown me all the way across this country to give secret counseling to them. They had everything that money could buy, more than you can imagine. But once you got inside the, the cocoon where there's the, the most of privacy... They're eaten out, miserable, lonely, because only the Lordship of Jesus Christ can handle that. And I saw many, many times that that which they thought was much better was really much worse. Well, for a while I meditated upon this, these two words, the much better. Lord, I want the much better life, not for my own selfishness, but I want to honor you. And I want that much better life to be used for you and by you. Well, after a while, I started reading the Scriptures again there at chapter 8. And in the back of my mind, I was thinking, now, God says that the much better life is serving Him, but now I want to go a little further and see if this much better life has a specific description. What is the much... What, what can I do? Maybe I'm making a mistake. You know, they say sometimes you can be so busy in the work of the Lord that you miss the Lord of the work. And almost every elder and every church worker sometimes discovers, hey, I'm doing too much, but I'm missing the one I'm serving for, serving. And so I, I began to continue reading, looking for much better. What, what can I do to make life much better? Well, it wasn't until I got down to Second Chronicles chapter 13 and verse 11. A lot of verses there I was not saying anything to me, but I assumed that God's Spirit was making that much better raise itself up until I came to verse 11 of Second Chronicles 13. And in this other version, the New Living Translation, it referred to the bread of the presence. Well, that's not English. <laughs> that's not American. The bread of the presence. What does that mean? Well, these five words partially answered my question of how we can serve the Lord to reap the much better life. Well, I stopped and I remembered what I had read. In those days, among the many ways that priests could serve the Lord, one of the primary functions, now let me say primary, there are other things, but one of the primary functions was to have the assignment to bring the bread of the presence to the table in the holy place in the temple because that bread signified the presence of the Lord. And they were to stay there and turn around and look at this bread of the presence and meditate upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I'm sure they didn't know those words, the Lord Jesus Christ, but meditate upon the Lord, we'll say it that way. 
and think of who he is and what he's done for them, and fall in love with him afresh and worship and adore him. And we're going to comment on that as we go along. Well, I didn't know that at the moment. The bread of his presence, that's not in the King James Bible. So I stopped and I reached over and I got my good old faithful Bible. And I went to that verse and it didn't say the bread of his presence. It said, anyone know what it says? Showbread. Well, I'd studied. I'd taught on the tabernacle for years, but I, I never had this understanding. Showbread and the, instead of the bread of his presence. And my Bible had a note in the margin, and the, directed, the, the note directed me to Exodus chapter 25 and verse 30. Now, if you have my kind of Bible, if you turn over to Exodus 25 and verse 30, you'll find a footnote on the word showbread, which is the same as the bread of this presence. Here's what it says in part. Showbread, a type of Christ, the bread of God, nourisher of the Christian's life as a believer priest. Now, if you want spiritual nourishment, get into the Word. You're not going to go very far in spiritual growth and nourishment if you take a few days and forget God and forget to read. As the manna, now catch this, I'm going to say it twice and I hope you get it. As the manna is a type of the life-giving Christ, in like manner the showbread is a type of the life-sustaining Christ. There's a difference. It's one thing to be born. It's another thing to stay alive and stay in good health. Notice that the showbread is the type of the life-sustaining Christ. It typifies Christ as the grain of wheat ground in the mill of suffering and brought into the fire of judgment. We as priests by faith feed upon Him. Now let's remember those words. We feed upon Him as having undergone that suffering and judgment in our stead and for our sakes. Feeding upon Christ, the margin says in footnote, is meditation upon the sufferings of Christ as in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 2 and 3. Now remember this. We're going to come back to this. In other words... By not taking a, a nice little hunk of time every day and meditating upon the sufferings of our Lord Jesus Christ, we miss the better life. Now, hold on a minute, Bob. This is where most of us fail. We've got to be to work at a certain hour. We get up at 4.30 in the morning. We do our morning ablutions. We catch up the train or whatever, and off we go. And all day long, our primary thoughts are dedicated to work. After all, that's the way you make money. Money, 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 money. Success, power, influence, all of this. i got to make money. Well, we do make money. But how does that affect our spiritual growth? And how does it, expect, how, how does it, express, how does it affect a better life? We prefer to spend our time in thoughts and other things instead of thinking upon Christ and His suffering for us, and we miss it. After meditating upon Second Chronicles chapter 13 and verse 11, I continued by turning over to Hebrews chapter 12, verses 2 and 3, and this is the third little impression. I'm just going to give you three little impressions. This is the third one already. And for a while, I sat there and I meditated upon that footnote. And the third word that really reached in and grabbed my heart was there in Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 3, 
where the word consider him, in my Bible and in the dictionary says, to think about and weigh his worth. Look at the margin if you have my kind of Bible. Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 3. Bob, you're, you're making it a little bit complicated. Well, we're going to uncomplicate it as we go along here in a moment with these three impressions. Consider, think about, and weigh His worth, the worth of the Lord Jesus. Well, when I read that, immediately 2 Corinthians 3.18 came into my mind. And, and this is the verse, "...but we all with an unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are changed, transformed into the same image from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit." And all of a sudden, my little devotion came down on me like bricks. I finally got it. In other words, if we put these three things together, and incidentally, they are theologically hooked up to each other. Those of you that have been around assemblies like this for 50 or 60 years used to remember some of the old brethren that would come through, and they would take the tabernacle and the way they would go on it. And they would talk about thinking on the Lord, living for the Lord, but giving your thoughts to the Lord. We're not going to advance very far if all of our thoughts are somewhere else. In other words, as one's thoughts and life are in a practical way, not just some rules and regulations, in a practical way, day by day, are occupied with Christ. By the way, they serve the showbread every day, and then on the Sabbath too. Every day they meditated upon God's love, God's message, and God's salvation, God's sacrifice. The Holy Spirit takes that meditation. Now, you have to decide if you can believe this or not. But this is clearly what the Bible says. As we think upon the sufferings of the Lord for us, the Holy Spirit takes that and nourishes us and transforms us to be more like the Lord. Sometimes I say, Lord, the Holy Spirit's not working very good. I, I can spend all day meditating upon the Lord and not get very much. But that's not my problem. That's not my responsibility. My responsibility is to obey. And the Spirit of God is always working. We have some kids in our, in our church. Some of them, I, I wonder if, if their driveway goes all the way out to the sidewalk, if, if you know what I mean. And I like to ask them, well, what did you learn in school this week? Nothing. What did you learn today? Nothing. What did you learn all month? Nothing. Have you learned anything all year in school? Nope, hadn't learned a thing. But some strange way they are promoted to the next class. Maybe the teacher's trying to get rid of them. I don't know. But, but they seem to make it. And sometimes we learn so slowly that we don't realize that we're learning. What did you learn today? Nothing. And sometimes I think I don't get much. But God has promised in the Word, the Word itself, if you read the Word, Appreciate the Lord Jesus. Connect what you're reading with Him one way or the another, another, and especially the sufferings of Christ on the cross. You will be, by the transforming power of the Holy Spirit, a little more like the Lord. Now, you've got to read that again. Second Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 18. As our thoughts and life in a practical way are occupied with Him, we become more like Him. Then it dawned upon me, as clear as the nose on my face, 
It is this that lifts one from, to the much better life, from the mundane of success in the world. Mentioned back in Second Chronicles 12 and 8. Now, here's the, here's the beautiful conclusion to me. The beautiful conclusion of this thing is that it's completely free from the accoutrements of worldly success. What are the accoutrements of worldly success? Well, wealth, number one. Plenty of money in the bank. Health, feeling good. Go to the health club every day. You got the money, you know. Thirdly, in addition to health and wealth, status. Boy, when I walk in the office, everyone says, Good morning, Mr. Bruton. How are you? My office is one person. That's me, so I have to look in the mirror. Good morning, Brother Bob. How are you? I'm fine. How are you? You know. We like that. It appeals to our ego. Power. I've made it. Success. Power and so on. We like that. However, the poorest, most failing Christian on this earth has the possibility of the much better life than the most successful non-Christian on this earth. We don't need any of that to enjoy the better life because the better life is the attitude of falling in love with the Lord and following Him and leaving the rest with Him. Now, sometimes God, like Solomon, He may bless that person and give them wealth. But let's remember that all of these things have nothing to do with the better life. In either case, it doesn't matter because we're enjoying the better life in Christ. Now, Bob, I'm having a hard time linking all this up, so let me just summarize it in the next one minute and we'll close. When I finished my little devotion that morning, I had to put my Bible down. I was just about to fly. I was lying in bed. I wake up at 5.30 every morning and I turn the light on and I have a little light that doesn't disturb Jeannie next to me on my left there and I tilt it so she can still be in the dark while, until she wakes up at 6.30. And some of my most precious times are just quietly there, but the phone's not ringing. Nobody's calling me at that time in the morning. And if they did, I wouldn't hear because I disconnect the phone. And just to lay there and take God's Word and meditate for an hour or so. The greatest life on earth, I think I enjoy it because I'm paid to study God's Word and share with others what I learn. I can't get any better. It's like being paid to eat ice cream. But the thought is this. What have I learned? I ask myself, Bob, now what have you learned from this little devotion today? Well, first of all, God desires every Christian to serve Him in precept and principle and practice, not just theological understanding of something. That's number one. Number two, a primary way. Now, there are many ways, but one of the primary ways is to start thinking about Christ and His sufferings on the cross for us, for you, for me. Bob, we have to limit it to that? Well, primarily. Because it is from that transaction and what happened there Remember 1 Corinthians 11 concerning the Lord's Supper? For as often as you break the bread and drink the cup, you do show the Lord's death till He come. God wants us. Why would God want us to do that every week? Maybe there are some of you today who do not attend the communion service. That's what we call it in our assembly, in our church. Maybe most of you do come. But actually, if you're not familiar with how to do what I'm talking about, start attending the Lord's Supper or the communion service right here in this chapel. 
and you will find that the primary theme is to look by faith to the cross. And recall when the Lord was there on that cross, the giving of His body, the shedding of His blood, all the suffering that He went through, and theologically, all that took place during that. You can't exhaust that subject. And in a strange way, it has an internal effect. And it won't be long before you'll discover what, what we're really trying to do when we spend an hour or so meditating upon the sacrifice of Christ on the cross and His suffering for us. Then, every day in the week, you can do that by yourself. Get up every morning and go through the same ritual of remembering the Lord and His suffering for us and for you. Well, what happens? Well, once you get the hang of it, you won't be limited to one day a week in church. You'll enjoy this little private interaction with God. Well, Bob, I just can't connect that. I just can't seem to see how that one thing makes life better. You don't have to see it. <laughs> just do it. And it says the Spirit of God will transform, transfigure us to be more like the Lord. And you'll never quit once you get it because you'll be enjoying the better life that God mentioned back in Chronicles. The better life. You can't explain it. In my 52 years of being a Christian and serving the Lord, and I don't say this boastingly, I say it almost critically, I've had the invitation from probably a hundred different churches to come and be a, a full-time worker, pastor, minister, whatever word you want to use, doesn't matter. And some of them I have been flown over to and spend a couple of months with them. Some of them among our church fellowships and some in other groups. But the main thing I was concerned about was the Lord's Supper. Now, how do they fare at the Lord's Supper? There's a church right here in Concord that has 600 people in the first service and 800 people in the second service. Once a month, they have the Lord's Supper for the whole group. They come together and they do it all in 10 minutes. And the first six rows are kids with rubber bands and spitballs playing. And when the bread and the wine comes along, they take it. They've had it. Well, will you, will you like to come and, and, and serve as one of the uh, full-time ministers here? No, thank you. No, thank you. No, thank you. No, thank you. Because you missed the master key to spiritual growth. Well, time is up. May God's Spirit motivate us to begin feeding on Christ the showbread as often as possible. Maybe I'm talking to some folks here today, and I don't know. I'm just making this up because I do it by faith. I don't know, the, I don't know a thing about anyone's life in this room, so I can speak freely. So there. Some of you might be going through hardships right now that harder than you've ever had in your previous years. Feed on Christ. He will speak to you through the Word. He will give joy to your hearts. He will pick you up. Get your eyes off the world of flesh and the devil. I had a funeral yesterday for Edna Mork, a good, godly Christian woman. And in the preaching of my little outline, I said something like this at one particular point. The Christian has three enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil. I don't have too much trouble with the world. They don't have a whole lot of trouble with me. And I don't think Satan would waste his time on a little dude like me. You know who I have trouble with? 
It's a person named Robert Allen Bruton. And the great thing about Christian death is this carcass has that nature built in it, and it's going to the grave. And when they bury this body, I'm going to be up looking down. I'm not looking for the undertaker. I'm looking for the upper taker. I'll be up looking down. And I will be free from my old nature. What a wonderful privilege to be, by the help of the Holy Spirit, try to be a Spirit-filled Christian and be as free as possible as you can be from the old nature in this life. Some of you might be suffering socially, physically, mentally, emotionally, church-wise, spirit-wise. I don't know. But I'll tell you this, as this helped me, if you will get your Bible and say, Lord, what does it say? What does the verse say? What does it mean? And what does it mean to me? Every verse won't have meaning to you. But if you keep reading and get three good impressions, you will always be fed the Word of God every day at the point of your deepest need. Maybe there's some of you today and you're down, way down. You just can't get it up. You just can't, you can't seem to be where you ought to be spiritually. Let me urge you to go home today, have your Sunday dinner, crawl in the sack, sleep 30 minutes or whatever, and get wide awake, fully alerted, plugged into 220, and then pick up your Bible and start reading it. And say, Lord, what does it mean to me? Give me the verses I need most appropriate to answer the problems right now. And in a few hours, the joy bells will start ringing. They may sound like they're down the street, but you keep doing it, and the bells will get louder and louder and louder, and you'll have the joy of the Lord return to your heart and life. Time's up. Let's bow our heads and dismiss in prayer. Now, once again, this hasn't been a gospel message. You know that. Once again, this hasn't been seven points by somebody. It's just a sharing with you what God's Word spoke to me recently. And to be really honest with you, I've come to believe it's one of the most important factors in the Christian life. Learn to feed on Christ day by day. And as we do, we become more like Him. Maybe we realize it, maybe we don't, but take that by faith. And you will begin realizing that you're moving into the category of the better life. Leave the world behind. Leave the flesh behind. Leave the devil behind. Never mind status and power and wealth and all of that. The poorest Christian on this earth who's enjoying the better life is better off than the most successful non-Christian on this earth in any of those categories. Heavenly Father, we just open our hearts to you now, and I can't bless anyone in this room. All that I can do is share what I believe to be the truth of the Scriptures. But the Holy Spirit can take these truths and speak to our hearts. And we pray especially now for those who have never uh, had revealed to them this wonderful truth of the better life coming through meditation daily upon our Lord Jesus and His sufferings for us. Lord, put it into their hearts to practice this until they get it, till they pick it up, till they inhale it. And put it into practice. For we know that the net results, no matter of the circumstances around us, can be much better in our Lord Jesus. Bless Your Word to our hearts, we pray. And dismiss us with your blessings, we pray, in our Savior's name. Amen. Thank you very much. Now, I'll try not to preach like that again if you were not blessed, but if you were blessed, I hope God will bless His Word to your heart. Thank you much.